go. Welcome back, my friends, to the podcast that never ends. We're so glad you could attend. Come inside. Come inside. I am Mr. Joseph Spiegel, Ugh. and uh, sitting across from me is uh, Reluctant Mac. Reluctant Mike. You're reluctant to like my accent. Fucking thing. (laughs) Nothing but the best. High quality. (laughs) Welcome to the Ballad of Buster Scrubs. Really? Yes. What, do you think I'm going to do the whole episode in that fucking accent? No, I'm not. I should, though, just to fuck with you. Um... (laughs) Yes, let's get into The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. It is a um, Western anthology film written, directed, and produced by the Coen brothers. Made for Netflix. Why do you do this? Why um, do you go... Because it's dramatic. Stop. It's like douchey traumatic. Stop being douchey traumatic. I said traumatic. (laughs) That too. You look a little traumatized. All right, so yeah, let's get into these six fucking films. (laughs) These six um, chapters. Chapters, I was going to say episodes. (laughs) These vi- these vignettes, vignettes, vignettes. Don't read them all. Just get into it. Oh well, yeah, yeah. All right. So, Buster Scruggs, a cheerful singing cowboy, outlaw and misanthrope, arrives at an isolated bar full of other outlaws, where he exchanges insults with another patron before effortlessly shooting everyone as they reach for their guns. He then heads to town and enters a saloon with a no-firearms ar- policy, with which he complies. He joins a game of poker that a player has suddenly left, but discovers the player vacated the seat after being dealt the infamous dead man's hand, which the other players insist Buster play now that he has seen the cards. When Buster refuses, a large menacing player named Joe stands and draws a concealed pistol. Buster repeatedly kicks a plank in the poker ta- table, which tips Joe's gun hand so that his pistol points backwards and discharges into his face. Having shot himself three times, Joe falls dead. Clancy Brown, by the way, is Joe. Uh, Buster breaks I it. Said, what? Oh, you didn't want me to? I said don't read the whole thing. Oh, okay. Because well, I, I, you have six of these to go through. I, I can read them fast and enthusiastically. <laughs> All right. Anyway, uh, so this first one is the... But my this is my favorite part of the entire film because it's funnier than shit. Um, the part because <laughs> there's there's singing, there's just it, Tim Blake Nelson is smiling the whole fucking time, and um, when he gets into a battle at the end of the uh, at the end of his uh, chapter, um, a gun battle with someone who's younger and better than him, and he dies. It is so fucking hilariously clever where. The song, the singing switches to the new gun, the new shootist, right? And as he's slowly riding away, the camera's panned up below him, looking up into the sky as fucking Tim Blake Nelson has wings now and he's floating up into the sky singing. You can, like, and the farther, it's like the Doppler effect. The farther up he's going, the less and less you can hear him. <laughs> and it's so goddamn funny. And Kendrick is like, you know, my son kept looking at me going, what? And I go, dude, this is goddamn hilarious. You should be laughing. And uh, yeah, that, 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 that whole first segment is, is hilariously awesome. All right, let's get into the next one. All right, this one's called uh, Near Algodonis. I guess that's how you pronounce it. A young cowboy attempts to rob an isolated prairie bank. The bank teller fires a row of shotguns positioned under the counter, then flees out the back door. The cowboy takes the money and leaves through the front door, but the teller shoots him before he can ride away. The cowboy hides behind a well and then returns fire. Then the teller charges the cowboy while wearing a washboard and several pots and pans his armor. 
<laughs> which deflect the cowboy's bullets while the teller repeatedly cackles. Uh, he does not say pan shot. He says bad shot, by the way. someone That's a typo. Um, and uh, the teller knocks the cowboy out with his rifle butt, and when the cowboy regains consciousness, he's sitting upon his horse under a tree with his hands tied and a noose around his neck. A posse surrounds him, and the lawman who's in charge asks for his final words since the group convicted the cowboy and sentenced him to death while he was semi-conscious. The execution is interrupted by am- ambushing Comanche warriors who quickly slaughter the lawman and the posse, but leave the cowboy in place upon the horse. After a time, a drover happens by and frees the cowboy, who then joins him on his drive. However, the drover is actually a rustler, and they are promptly chased down by another lawman's posse. The posse captures the cowboy, takes him down, and blah, blah, blah. He, um, he ends up getting hung. <laughs> this sounds like a scene from Silverado, by the way. Okay. Um, it, this, so this, the, the, the main character is James Franco, and the guy who we- the bank teller who wears all the pots and pans is played by Steven Root. Uh-huh. And it's fucking hilarious. That, that I forgot about how because um Buster Scruggs was so damn funny, I forgot about this one, but this one was also funny. And it ends like a um the ending to it is like a uh I guess irony. It's like an ironic ending cuz he he miraculously gets freed from being hung one time and then he ends up getting hung again for something that wasn't even his fault. Hanged. Hung, hanged. Hey, fuck you, Clint Eastwood. Say it right. right. So uh, then we go on a meal ticket. <laughs> what? Um, what? You bring up Stephen Root. So yeah, I love Stephen Root. Um, Great character actor. God damn it! What was the? Uh, um, he played Milton in Office Space. If anyone wants to know that, he's also in uh, Buddy. Is that it, Buddy? Buddy. The TV show on HBO. I haven't watched that. Oh, Barry. Barry. That's yeah, it. he's uh, he's um, John Hader's handler. Just you know, Hader, Hader's a hitman. Not John Hader. Bill Hader. Thank you. Yeah. I couldn't think of his name for a second. I'm like, it's, <laughs> but it's not right. Um, you know what? It's John Heater. John Heater is the one from Napoleon Dynamite. Right. So I, I got pulled in Thanksgiving. They were doing a, the HBO free weekend thing. Yeah. And they ran the entire first season of of um, Barry. Mm-hmm. And I, I think I got pulled in like, I can't remember which episode it was. Let's just say it was, well, it was early episode. Okay. You know, and... And it's the episode where they got their they they weren't captured, but they're in the garage of the Russian mafia. Yeah, it's like the third episode or something. Like that. And and they start filing away on uh, Root's teeth. Yeah, you know. And so they uh, they want Hater to do a, a job for him, right? Yeah. I mean, he doesn't want to do it, but he ends up doing it anyways. But the guy that has him do the job, he's like, I want you to do it, but I want you to do it at this time. He's like. It, you know, it just—it's going to take time. It's you, you can't—you yeah. can't predict these things. And every time he gets a free shot, the guy is just standing there out in the driveway, just you know, stretching and yawning, or picking up a paper, or yeah. going out to his car to have a cigarette. Or yeah, it's you know, all these perfect opportunities to shoot this guy, right? Yeah. It, anyways, so Stephen Root mm-hmm. is playing the handler, and every time he's in the garage, he's always talking his way out of getting killed. Yeah. You know, and he's—he's—he's he's, he's so good at. The sales pitch, right? Yeah, that he <laughs> he ends up <laughs> ends up getting out of it somehow. Yeah, he's like buddy, becomes buddies with him and shit. Yeah, you know they were gonna have uh, the brother of one of the assassins yeah. kill him with a fucking skill saw. Yeah, and, and all of a sudden they're eating a sandwich together or something. Yeah, no, he's building a fucking. Um, he, he was building a trap, not a trap, a uh, 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 st- stockyard. Mm-hmm. Um, you know where. It's an old timey yeah. stock 
where they put people into, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, like, you know, in the center, town center. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Be ridiculed. The stocks is really what it's called. And have tomatoes thrown at your face. Yeah, yeah. And rocks. Yeah. Have so little kids piss on you. They they were he, the 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 Russian guy was building one of those, and of course the you know the mafia the Russian the the head of the family comes in and is like, what are you fucking doing? Yeah. He's like, I'm building this. It's going to be much more. I, I need this for myself. Yeah, you know. And then he shoots the guy, and mm-hmm. then he gets shot, and yeah, they escape, and then et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That, that is a but, funny show. Henry Winkler uh, won an Emmy for it. Yeah. Um. Anyways. So the bald guy, the bald Russian guy, that's the guy who plays Victor Zaz on um, Gotham. Okay. And that's how good of an actor he is because he's completely different on Gotham as Victor Zaz. He's a hitman on that. So, um, yeah, it, funny, funny character. Um, all right. So, yeah, anyone gets a chance to see Barry, definitely watch that show. Yeah, I, I only brought it up because of Stephen Root. Yeah, it's Stephen Root's awesome and everything. He was on Justified, too. He played a judge. Yep. Yeah, it was really good. All right, so the next one is called Meal Ticket. This is a sad one. This is, the, yeah, okay. So an aging impresario and his artist named Harrison, a young man with no arms or legs, or legs. It should be arms and legs. Matt. All right. <laughs> Travel from town to town in a wagon that converts into a small stage where Harrison's, uh, Harrison theatrically recites classics such as Shelley's poem, Osmandius, the biblical story of Cain and Abel, works by Shakespeare, and Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. The impresario collects money from the audience at the end of each performance with profits dwindling as they visit increasingly remote mountain towns with smaller and more indifferent audiences. The impresario observes a man drawing a crowd with a chicken, which can ostensibly perform basic math by pecking at painted numbers to answer, <laughs> answer addition and subtraction equations that the audience calls out. After buying the chicken with money from a large roll of dollar bills, the impresario drives their wagon through a mountain pass and stops by a bridge over a rushing river. He walks to the center of the bridge and drops a large stone to gauge the river's depth before returning to the wagon wearing a faint smile. The film then cuts to the story's final scene in which he has resumed driving the wagon. The caged chicken has is his only passenger. That's pretty fucking. That was a fucking sad one. It, and the main the, the main guy who was who drew, you know, the 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 main character was Liam Neeson. And um yeah, I don't know the name of the guy that played Matt. <laughs> um you mean Harrison? Yeah. So, all right. Um, that one, yeah, that was the saddest one I think out of all of them. Um, uh, Harry Melling. Yeah, he's uh, he's one of those actors that I might have seen in something else, but I, I don't recall if I, I can remember if I did or not. So, okay. Um, all Gold Canyon. This is a good one. This is with Tom Waits. Um, a grizzled prospector arrives in a pristine mountain valley. Over the course of several days, he searches for a vein up the hill from a stream. First panning through shovelfuls to count the gold specks and then digging a deeper hole once he's identified the vein's likely location. After his first night camping at the site, he spots a great horned owl tending its treetop nest at the edge of the valley. When he climbs up and reaches the nest, he begins to take all the eggs for his morning uh, morning breakfast. But the other but the mother's owl, the mother owl's watchful gaze from a nearby tree causes him to replace all but one. On his third day, he digs out golden nuggets of increasing size before finally reaching Mr. Pocket, a large gold vein running through the quartz he's uncovered. But no sooner does he make his discovery than a shadow falls over him, a young man who has been trailing the prospector and letting him do all the work, sneaked up to the edge of the hole. I don't want to give anything else away. Um, this, is a, this is probably like the, the most like engrossing one because Tom Waits is such a good fucking actor. Um, in this role, you feel so sorry for him when this thing happens, 
and the guy that's standing over him in the hole when this this thing happens this the guy's not related in real life to Tom Waits but he looks like a younger version of Tom Waits so I'm wondering if it's just an unmentioned thing in the story if the guy is maybe related to Tom Waits's character in in the in in, in that um, chapter probably not but it, that that's a very good episode <laughs> um and then there's a twist to it, which was which was cool. I was kind of expecting it, but yeah. Okay, so this one's called The Gorilla Got Rattled. I don't understand why you don't want to give anything away. It's a fucking movie review. You do you. Me do me. <laughs> All right. The Gal Who Got Rattled. <laughs> a young woman named Alice Long- Longabau and her older brother Gilbert and inept business businessman are journeying in a wagon train across the prairie towards Oregon. Kind of like an Oregon trail. Where Mr. Gilbert claims a new business partner will marry his sister. Gilbert dies of cholera shortly after they embark. Like Oregon Trail. Yeah. And the wagon's train leaders, Mr. Billy Knapp and Mr. Arthur, help Alice bury him. Though she has no certain prospects, Alice decides to continue to Oregon rather than return east. Matt, the young man Gilbert hired to lead their wagon. God damn, why how did I read that? Just continue. Yeah. Expects that the, when they reach the halfway point at Fort Laramie. He'll receive half the $400 he, he claims Gilbert promised him and return home. Did I skip a whole line? No, you fucking read between the commas, <laughs> William Shatner. And he'll return home. The young man paid. Gilbert hired to lead their wagon expects that when they reach the halfway point at Fort Laramie... <laughs> Alice cannot find Gilbert's money and fears he was buried with it. So she conveys her predicament to Billy, who offers his support in contemplating how to proceed. All right. Through the course of the conversations, Billy grows fond of Alice and proposes to solve her dilemma by marrying her at Fort Laramie. Anyway, lo and behold, um, she goes off um, to go uh, look at some, like, look, look, go look at the view, and um, they get attacked by, um, she gets attacked by Indians, and the guy, the older man who's running this wagon train, um, he goes to save her, and she ends up shooting her own self in the head because she thinks that they're going to get killed by these Comanches and, and, and scalped and everything. And, and then it just goes from him, you know, like, Oh, that's a damn shame. And he gets on his horse and, and he's, and it ends with him riding up to the, the younger guy who was, who proposed to her, they were going to get married. And, um, and you, you know, you're like, Oh, well, he's going to have to tell him. And that's just how it ends. It's like, it's like a sad, weird thing. Cause this, this one is a weird one. This one is, um, it's kind of like my least favorite, but also it's really it's still compelling at the same time because you want to see where it's going. And I thought her character, until the end when she shot, shot herself, I thought that she was just acting innocent for everyone around her because she's a woman in this you know violent environment in the 1800s, right? And I, so I was waiting for her to just end up with a with a one up on everybody, like she used everyone to get to what she you know the ends that she wanted. But instead, it wasn't like that at all. It just ends up being this fucking sad event of circumstances, you know, where it ends and you're just like, you know, and I think the Coen brothers did that shit on purpose because they don't want everything to just have a happy ending or or whatever. It Yeah. So it, it is interesting, though. Uh, the Mortal Remains. This is the last one. All right. This one, this one kind of reminded me of Hateful Eight because a lot of this, the whole thing takes place in a stagecoach until like the last five minutes, then it's at the hotel. Um, at sunset, an Englishman, an Irishman, a Frenchman, lady and a trapper ride to Fort Morgan in a stagecoach. Thigpen says he and Clarence, I should have read their names with it, right? Thigpen says he and Clarence often travel this route, ferrying cargo, quote unquote, alluding to a corpse on the roof, but he does not specify the nature of their business. The trapper rambles about his past race, ra- relationship with a, with a native woman, observing that, that though neither, neither knew the other's language. God, I fucking lost that. 
They understood each other because, like the animals he traps, at the basic emotional level, people are all alike. Mrs. Uh, Batman. There you go. Benjamin, <laughs> a devout Christian, indignantly rebuts this assertion, arguing that there are two kinds of people, upright and sinning. It was upright. Yeah, okay, whatever. Um, no, 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 no. I was thinking because I don't remember her saying sinning in the, in the, in the, in the, in the movie. So um, She explains that her expertise derives from the career of her husband, a retired lecturer, on moral and spiritual hygiene, with whom she's reuniting after having been apart for three years. Uh, Renee challenges Mrs. Uh, Bedgman to <laughs> the trapper, suggesting that human experiences are unique to each individual because they are complex and subjective. For example, oh, Shatner. Uh, Mrs. Benjamin might conceive of love. It's not Benjamin. I said Betjamin, like Vita Benjamin. <laughs> um, uh, um, might conceive of love differently than does Miss, Mrs. Uh, Benjamin. And so perhaps he, he um, has not been uh, remained faithful during their separation. Uh, Mrs. Uh, Benjamin becomes ap- apoplectic at the thought, and Rene calls for the coachman to stop. But his policy is not to halt for any reason. Clarence sings a bittersweet folk song to calm the group, and he and Thigpen reveal themselves to be reapers, or bounty hunters. Thigpen explains that their routine is for him to distract their prey with stories, so Clarence can thump them. Thickpin goes on to say that he enjoys watching the prey die, especially the expression in their eyes as they negotiate the passage and try to make sense of it. The other three are visibly unsettled by Thickpin's revelations as they arrive at the foreboding hotel where they will be staying and remain in the stagecoach while Thickpin and Clarence carry the corpse inside. The three travelers then warily step down from the coach and gingerly make their own way through the hotel's front door. Um, yeah, this is one of those ones that is like, maybe my brain can fully contemplate it, but it felt like this one was one of those open for interpretation kind of end, you know, um, uh, chapters for it. So, um, but it's good. It's you know, it's this one's more dark humorish, and um, yeah, the lady was played by um, you know Cagney and Lacey, Tyne Daly, um, and then uh, the, the the old trapper was played by uh, Chelsea um, Chelsea Ross, the old man. Um, <laughs> up your butt, Joe Boo, and uh, then the yeah the other two guys. Um, who I can't remember who were played by. One of them, one of the guys looks like um, Ada, Alan, not Alan. Brendan Rock. Gleason, John Joe O'Neill, Saul Rubinick as the Frenchman. Oh, I forgot Chelsea about Yeah, Saul Rubinick. You know what? And those, what was cool about um, Saul Rubinick was that because he, you know, um, he was an unforgiven. He was the pugilist. You know, he was the one that followed in the Duke of Death, the Duck of Death, uh, Richard Harris's character um, in Unforgiven. So, um, yeah, that you know what? This whole movie is extremely well acted, extremely well shot. Um, it's intriguing. I, I'm surprised, though, that it didn't delve into other directions than it did. You know, each story is definitely different from the others, but um, I was expecting in this day and age a movie that would be set in this time period would have um, delved into more um, racy type things. Like, it didn't delve into the lives of Indians, of black slaves, of, uh, of the suffrage of women. Um, it just, it didn't, it just, I, and I, and I'm not saying that as a negative or a positive. I just, I did, I expected that it would do that as a, as you know, one of the things that they do a lot in movies nowadays and they didn't, it just, each story was mostly about a guy, you know? So, um, but whatever, um, it's still, uh, this is, this is very entertaining and I, it's for me, it's one of those films I probably have to watch more than once to catch all the little nuances of it because 
just like the the movie I'm going to review from the Coen Brothers next week. Um, that movie is there's a lot of subtlety in that one as well. So um, yeah, this is uh, I recommend this. It's on Netflix. So if you got Netflix, it's free. So watch it. The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Well, it's it sounds interesting. I want to watch it. Mm-hmm. Um, I've heard very good things about this. Yeah. For lack of a better term, a movie. I mean, it's it's a it's it's a chapter driven movie, but none of the um, none of the stories uh, coincide with each yeah, other. Yeah, none of them are linked to each other right. in any way whatsoever. Other than uh, you know the Wild West or whatever. You want yeah, to call and, it. and the whole thing is done like a book. So like, it, first it opens up and then it shows a book, and then the page opens, shows the beginning of the story, and then when the story ends, uh, when it goes into the movie mode. Then it shows the last page of the book, and then it, then it then it flips over to the next one, and then so on and so forth. Um, so yeah, it's uh it's done in a very classic kind of style, you know, storybook uh, movie telling. And yeah, I yeah, the, the, the dude, you know what? This is what I like about the Coen Brothers is that they don't, even though they're Oscar winning act, you know, um, directors, writer directors, they don't make movies that are guaranteed to win Oscars. They make movies that they enjoy writing. And they make movies they want to see. They make movies for themselves. Yeah. And so even when there's movies of theirs that I'm not a big fan of, like, you know, Hail Caesar, um, they still, I mean, they're doing what they want to do and they're still really, really good at what they do as well. So even when I don't care for certain ones of their films, they still do a good fucking job on it, you know? Um, so this is one of those films that, um, I, you know, I could see maybe a couple awards for this thing, but, um, but yeah, I uh, it d- doesn't really matter. I don't even fucking validate the Oscars anymore. Fuck the Oscars. So, uh, yeah, that's it. Why does Frances McDormand look like Tom Holland? <laughs> oh, I don't know. She's being um, what's that word? I can't think of the word. She looks like Tom Holland. I, I understand you said Tom Holland, but I'm no, you're kind of trying to come up with a pun or something. No, funny. I'm not trying to pun anything. I, I'm talking about the the look on her face, not who she looks like. She always has that look. Like, like that serious, you know, you're going to listen to me now look on her face. Like when she won the Oscar last year. Um, hmm. Yeah. All right. Yeah, they, they, they're... I finally saw Barton Fink um, a few months ago on uh, Netflix. Yeah, that's an interesting movie. It's not bad. I would fucking, as always, John Goodman is amazing in it. Yeah. John Goodman always stands out in every Coen Brothers movie he's in. Um, I didn't know they did Unbroken. I see. I still need to see Inside um, Llewellyn D- Davis. I don't want to see Unbroken. Fuck that movie. Um, oh wait, wait, wait. Oh, they that that's um. What did they do? They just um because they didn't write Brit. They I mean they didn't direct Bridge of Spies. Bridge of Spies was directed by. They wrote uh, it. Yeah, there we go. Okay, so it's for writing. Yeah, because they didn't direct Unbroken. Unbroken was directed by um, Angelina Jolie. So um, there we go. Yeah, Blood Simple's good. That's her first film. Um, I've never seen Crime Wave. I remember you talking about that. That was your pick of the week one week. Um, Raising Arizona. I, it's been a long time since I've seen that one. Um, I own Miller's Crossing on DVD. And that's a good movie. Um, the Hudsucker Proxy. I still have never seen that movie. That's okay. Um, yeah. Uh, of course, Fargo. Big Lebowski are classics. Oh, Brother, We're Out Thou. It's, it's good. Not, to me, it's not great, but it's definitely good. Uh, still haven't seen The Man Who Wasn't There with Billy Bob Thornton. Intolerable Cruelty. I used to own that on DVD. Um, that's a funny movie. The Lady Killers was it was okay. Almost. I like the Lady Killers. I've only seen it once, though. I've only seen, I, I saw it when it was new, so I, I don't. Um, and of course, uh, Chacon. Um, oh, it's a segment from something. Um, 
No Country for Old Men, of course, is classic. I own that one. Burn After Reading is funny. It was a good... Burn After Reading was... was what was genius about that one was because it was a change of pace, a complete change of pace after No Country for Old Men. And that, that, that's a perfect indicator of, of the Coen brothers, that they didn't just go for a straight-up guaranteed Oscar you know, winner, right? Burn After Reading is like this weird fucking hilarious... You know, this political hilarity film. Um that was really funny. Have you ever seen that one? Uh-huh. <laughs> that part with Brad Pitt in the fucking closet, that startled me the first time I saw it. I did not expect that shit to happen. Holy shit. Um, a Serious Man, that's the one I'm going to be doing next week. That's a fucking good movie too, man. Um, True Grit. I, I True Grit was good, but the, you know it's a remake. So I, I just, that was the tough part for me, you know, it, the fact that it was a remake. But everyone involved was good. It was really good in it. Uh, never seen Gambit. Never seen Inside of Llewellyn Davis. Uh, Suburbicon. You know, we, everyone knows our fucking opinion on Suburbicon. And uh, yeah, that's pretty much it, dude. So um, yeah, Coen Brothers, man, are awesome. And uh, if you like filmmaking in any kind of way, you should watch their films. And The Ballad of Buster Scruggs is, uh, is definitely one you got to check out. So uh, that's all I got there, uh, Phillies. All right. All right. So uh, uh, fuck off and uh, salutations. Good night. Bye.